We've been talking about race and racial justice, and last week Tremaine did a fantastic job covering for me, so thanks for that, buddy. Thanks, man. It, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I have discovered that as far as, as race and understanding race issues, most of the growth that has occurred in my life, and, and I, think, I think most of it has occurred with conversations with people that are different than I am. And I would even say the vast percentage of that has come with this guy right here. We, we have many times in our life just sat down and, and we're, we, we don't have any trouble with saying, let's talk about race. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's hash this out. And this, this may turn out to be just the dumbest idea we ever had. And it, <laughs> it may turn out to be absolutely awesome. But one of, the, one of the slides that we both used in our presentations was, was this right here. And the point being that if you want to understand someone, sitting down, having lunch, hearing their story, getting to know them uh, is, is a great first step and a, a great idea. And I mentioned how the, the, the cure to bigotry is to be well-traveled, which means when you, when you get in the face of someone who thinks differently than you do, looks differently than you do, listens to di music, different music than you do, dresses different than you do, uh, understanding happens when you, when you connect. And we, we, we talked about maybe doing some rap under the, under the guise of the band White Chocolate, yeah. but then that seemed yeah. kind of dumb. Yeah, and talked about the lightsaber fight. Yeah, we, we thought about a duel to the fight. death, and he could represent black folk, and I could represent white right. folk, and then we thought that was kind of counterintuitive to everything we were trying to accomplish. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, we, <laughs> we, we really have no agenda this morning. We just decided, because there's been so many times that T and I have sat down, and we have hashed stuff out, and it's been really powerful. I don't, I don't think there's ever been a time when you and I really sat down and talked to each other that I didn't up in tears. Wow. And, and pro I think sometimes for you as well. It's been, it's been emotional. It's been powerful. We have some talking points, and I do want to kick something off here specifically that I want to bring to the forefront. So, so we have some ideas of stuff we want to introduce, but there's no script this morning. Yeah. And part of the idea behind that was that you guys would get to see what it's like for two friends to sit down and say, hey, you're different than I am and talk cordially and kindly and, and try to understand each other. Now, you, when, I, when I pitched this idea to you, you had some reservations about it, right? Yes. Yes. Talk about that. To <laughs> talk about it. Okay. So um, here, here's the way I see it. And I think I'll talk about Andrew Luce about this this morning. So when it comes to preparing for any kind of like presentation or anything, uh, but especially if it's something that is uh, of God, you know, I want to make sure that it is correct, you know. So when I spoke last Sunday, I had started, you know, reading and preparing for that months before, you know. I know a lot of times, sometimes in Christian culture, Christians will say, the Holy Spirit will just tell me on the spot. But the thing is, time means nothing to God. So God can tell you what to talk about two months before you need to talk about it. So you have time to actually read and study and, and prepare. So uh, I like to have things prepared. So I had some ideas in my brain, and HL calls me yesterday. <laughs> and he says, hey, bro, I'm, I'm sorry about you coming over. I just saw your text. Hey, I'm thinking tomorrow we're just going to wing it, man. We're just going to have a conversation in front of everybody. <laughs> Hello, Tremaine? Hello, Tremaine? Uh, so what do you think about that? I was like, I, I, well, well. I had some, some ideas, <laughs> and so, and then on the drive over to H's house, I was thinking, you know, why, why am I not open, or why was I not open to, like, being away for something that's so, like, 
regimented, you know? And I got to thinking, like, in my, in my uh, job, you know, I'm always having to present information. And the thing is, I always want to make sure, even when I'm not presenting, that I am on top of everything. And I got to think, wow, when it comes with privilege, you have the freedom to be messy. Because if I'm messy at work, I feel like that the pressure is a little bit higher on me because, because of my race. So if I'm late to a meeting or if I get this kind of fudge on, on, a, on a project or on an assignment, it's not just, man, Jermaine really blew it as well. That's kind of what those people do. See what I'm saying? And so I was thinking like, so this was like really outside of my comfort zone to kind of break away from doing something that is unscripted. And, and that's the freedom to be, to be messy. So we talked about white privilege a lot. It almost seems like even this is a little bit of white privilege. I, ha I have the privilege of getting up, and if, I, if we have a conversation and I blow it, then it doesn't represent all white people. Yeah. But for you, there's that pressure. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the, the, three, the three bodies stuff we talked about a couple weeks ago with Franz Fanon. He's, he said he carries the weight of being a black man, the weight of being a man, the weight of carrying his race, and the weight of carrying his ancestors. Yeah. And, and that's a real pressure. Yeah. That happens. I wanted, I wanted to bring out a few slides right at the very beginning, that, that a couple that you used in your presentation and then uh, one that I used, and they all tie in together, and they're all from Scripture. We, we wanted to bring the message of God into this conversation. And uh, Scripture teaches that, therefore, God exalted him, being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I was reading, I was listening to, and I told you about this podcast, a, yeah. a, a podcast called Pass the Mic. Yeah. And it's, it's on race and race issues. And one of the things they talked about in there is the gospel and what is the gospel. And they defined it as Jesus, the Jesus is King gospel. Mm -hmm. And how a lot of times people, when, when they talk about Christianity, they talk about the gospel, they're worried about how do I get to heaven? That's kind of the gospel picture most people have. But in their, in their perspective in this podcast, they were talking about how the gospel is really that Jesus becomes king yeah. of everything. And, and that that's a different way of looking at it. And that's why we talk about race and why you and I hash things out is because we want, we want Jesus to be king over our friendship. Yeah. We want Jesus to be king over all our relationships. Yes. And, and continuing in Scripture, in Galatians it says, there's, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, the Psalms teaches that all the nations you have made will come yeah. and worship you. And even, even during the song today, some of the songs that Andrew wrote, or one of the songs that Andrew wrote, and it talks about you know, Jesus being preeminent. We want Jesus to be preeminent over culture. Yeah. We want him to be preeminent over art, over, uh, like I said, friendships, over mm -hmm. education and so forth. So do you, have any, do you have any thoughts on that, Jesus and race and the kingdom of God, anything? Yeah, it's so, like, I've been reading a lot of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's work recently, and um, my, my mom and uh, dad is in the audience. My mom, I think, I think they went to Atlanta or somewhere, and they came back, and uh, she bought me a book that had, like, all of his essays in it and all of his uh, speeches. And I, I loved it. It's one of, like, the best gifts, like, ever. So I've been reading through a lot of that. But it was interesting. So I've probably read the um, letter um, from the Birmingham jail probably like three times. And there's, basically he wrote that letter in reaction to a lot of negative feedback he was getting. And one of the areas of negative feedback came from Christian, came from Christians, came from clergymen, uh, both black and white. And the big debate was that they said, you know, as a Christian, 
you should let God take care of the race stuff, and you just need to focus on, you know, the church. You know, and he says, you're really, you're really out of order. I mean, you're causing disruption. People are getting hurt and even killed in these marches, and you're causing more disorder than, than, than solutions. And so that, and that was a criticism. Right. And his response was that he said basically he talked about like the, the, the apostles and when they went into a culture, the culture changed. Mm -hmm. Like these were Christians that impact the culture they were in. There weren't Christians that kind of set aside and let culture do its thing while we do our thing in our Christian bubble. And he, he basically told them, he was like, listen, your perversion of faith is making Christianity to, to no avail. And he's like, if you continue down that path, then you're going to corrupt the church to a point where it's no longer going to be relevant. Mm -hmm. And it's really prophetic words that he, that he says, because one of the things that a lot of churches struggle with is their relevancy or their connection with society. So when you were talking about having the, like the Lord, Jesus being Lord over every part of culture, well, if the Lord is over every part of culture, then we as Christians who are Christ-like shouldn't be fearful or scared to jump into those areas. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think what topic was Christ afraid of talking about? Mm -hmm. What area was he scared to go into or scared to, scared to deal with? But he was wise about them. Exactly. That's, that's the trick is for us to... Hash out to be. You know, it's funny, you, you, uh, I noticed in your presentation, and I, I remember from your presentation, the part where you had, I think, you had you and, and another gentleman come up, and you had people from the black camp and people from the white camp, and when you guys met in the middle, they started throwing things at you. Yeah. And you bring up Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I was reading this week about how uh, his approval ratings. So even back back then, I suppose they, they did polls and, and took approval ratings and they talked about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his approval ratings. And at his death, his approval ratings among white people was 28%. And I, I think the person I was listening to misspoke because they said that his disapproval rating among black folk was 68%. I think he got that reversed. But basically 28% of people, of white people approved of him and his message and 68% of black people did. So even in his own camp, he had a 32% rate of people saying, we, we disagree with you, we're against you. Yeah. So, and if you balance that out, it was, you know, you're talking 40% of, and now we hold him up as the icon yes. of the civil rights movement. But during his life, that's what he experienced. We, yeah. we, we feel, because now he's admired so fairly, and everybody admits he had faults. Everybody, yeah. everybody knows all, all the stories. But during his lifetime, he, he really had to move against a, a tough tide. And I feel like if, if, if we're going to follow in his footsteps at all, we have to be prepared for, for yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, prepare for conflict, prepare for tension. Mm -hmm. And as he called it, he called it creative tension. And it's interesting when, like, when you go through all, like all of his writings, like just read them consecutively. Uh, I feel like he, there was this like balance that he had to deal with. So on one end, you have the overt racism that is coming from white people against black people. Mm -hmm. That is one enemy, right? Um, so to speak. And then you have uh, the enemy of people your own, your own like. Christian, as far as a Christian culture, black and white, mm -hmm. they're against you. They're saying, it's not God's will for you to be going after this. You know, you need to stay away from that. You know, right. let, let, you know, leave, you know, let's see under Caesar what is Caesar, you know, just leave it alone. Uh, and then you have people who are black who are like, you know what, we're, we're getting killed. We're being lynched. We're having dogs sit, you know, sicked on us. We're going to have to fight fire with fire. We need to, we need to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. We need, we need to fight, we need to fight back. 
you know? And here he is in the, in the middle saying, no, we need to have uh, the utmost integrity in, in creating our creative tension. We need to uh, fight this, but we need to do it in a manner that's peaceful, in a manner that is, that is of God. And then we have over here, he says, no, we as Christians, we have a responsibility. We, we, we have been given, we are supposed to be God's outstretched hand on this planet. So you have to think, if we're God's outstretched hand on this planet, then what area does God not want to reach into? Mm-hmm. You know? So when you think of it from that perspective, you're like, oh man, well, we do need to, we do need to deal with this. We do, if we're going to have the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, then we need to spread his gospel throughout, throughout the earth, which is one of unity. It's one of reconciliation. And then over here with the overtly racist and overt uh, negativity, then we have to combat that as well, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it, it, it's tricky when you talk about like the disapproval amongst his own people. Uh, it's interesting. I was reading about like his process in which he engaged nonviolence, and uh, he talked about step number one was research to see if an offense even took place. Mm-hmm. And so here it is: people are being like literally murdered in the streets, and he's still kind enough and and thoughtful enough to say, "Well, let's consider the facts here. Let's step back." What, was that really something that was racially charged or was there something else? Did the person who was violated do something to yield that? What, what's the deal? Once you get past number one, if there is actually a situation, then he says, okay, we need to go to peaceful negotiations. And then he says, if they're not willing to peaceful, peacefully negotiate, then we need to take direct action. But before we take direct action, the third thing I have to do is I need to purify myself. So they had these situations where they would worship, and then they would literally like uh, have people sit up in rooms and they would pour ketchup on them and salt on them and call them all kinds of stuff. Practice. Can you deal with the tension of adversity without losing your cool? Mm-hmm. Can you deal with the paper walls coming at you, so to speak, you know, without turning to violence? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when Drew Lutz and I were doing that illustration, at any point we could have turned around or ran back and attacked the folks who were throwing paper balls at us. Right, which would be the easy thing you want to do when someone's attacking you. You naturally want to attack back. But people, you know, that, I, I wonder when we're when we're talking about this stuff because you know obviously Christianity centers around a cross. Yeah. And to what to what extent do we need to be willing to die? I mean, figuratively and literally. Yeah. Like if. if because we've talked about the tension, and, and you and I have talked about it a lot, and we've, we've talked about white privilege and, and the, the pain that has been passed on because of what white people did to black people, uh, which, by the way, the, the, the most, uh, probably the most criticism I've received from my sermon is from white folk who were upset about me painting a picture saying that white people started it, just, yeah. just so you know. Yeah, um, there's, been a lot, there's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of people saying Arabic people started it in Africa, and then uh, you know I've heard that the first slave owner in America was black, which I didn't know. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. Um, but I, to, to me, we're talking about the tension that's in America, yeah. and it has been perpetuated initially from white people that own black people. Uh, to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, but as the tension has escalated, and then it does, it, it, I read a blog that ties into what you were saying just now, um, and he was saying, how do we resist shedding blood when there's a system that has pulled so much blood from us? Yeah. And I, I think about Jesus, and I think, and I'm terrified of studying pacifism, by the way. I think I've told you, I'm, I'm afraid if I study pacifism, I'm going to have to sell my guns, and I really don't like that idea. <laughs> but... <laughs> but I'm terrified of studying pacifism because I suspect that that's probably the route Jesus would mostly encourage. Um, 
but when it came to Jesus, he just said, he didn't say it in a mean way, like, like in a bravado way, but he said, do your worst. Yeah. He said, whatever you have to do to me, do it to me. Yeah. I will not strike back. And I just wonder how much that enters into the whole, the whole picture. Even, even if it's just as simple as, something as simple as cutting somebody off in traffic or stepping in front of them in, in line or taking advantage in, of white privilege, you know, if, there's, if there isn't a, a part in, in both cultures that need, need to just say, kill me, mm-hmm. I'm, will, I'm willing. And I, I just wonder if, I don't know, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So... You know, the first thing that comes to my mind, and it's just, again, it's kind of, you know, uh, I guess it'd be like sharing a weakness, so to speak. So I have a really sharp wit, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and uh, I tell you this, uh, you know, I remember like, just growing up and being at like the bus stop, waiting on the bus and like people throwing jokes. And I'm like, you know, I wasn't that big, but I can throw some jokes back. And I always won. Now that often get me beat up, but that's a side topic. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is when... I like I encounter a situation that is 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 racial, mm-hmm. okay. Whether it be a situation or whether it be a comment, my first response is to attack with attack with humor. Now sometimes I use humor to educate, but sometimes I fall into using humor to cut, mm-hmm. you know, to cut back, you know. Uh, and the deal is the deal is there really does have to be a point where the manner in which you are combating what's coming at you needs to be of. Uh, it needs to be that high road, mm-hmm. you know, because the moment you sink down on that level, especially as uh, as a black person, the moment I show any kind of aggression, even if it's sarcastic, it's like, oh man, see, that's that's what black people are like. That's what they're that's what they're like. That's what I saw on the news. Mm-hmm. So we have to be, I have to be very careful in 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 how I engage those things mm-hmm. or how I attack those things. What you got for me, man? What do you want to talk about? So, um, so I, I didn't have as much uh, HL Kung Fu to this. Come over here and be like, man, I'm just going to go off the cuff, but, <laughs> you know. But so I did jot down some points that I wanted to connect with you on, and, um, and um, a couple of them we've covered. But one of them was, you know, some of the feedback that you got mm-hmm. from uh, white privilege and talking about white privilege and saying that white people started it. And um, you talked a little bit about that. Um, what are some of the reasons why you feel that you got so much of a um, intense or negative response? Well, you, you know, I had talked about that earlier, and I think you made some really valid points. If, 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 if a black guy gets up and talks about white privilege, there's a good portion of white culture that can just dismiss it, yep. say he's an angry black guy. Yep. If a white guy gets up and talks about white privilege, I, I feel like that... It, that rubs salt in a wound a little bit. It, 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 it's something that probably is abrasive because it can't be just dismissed. Yeah. It, it's not as easy to dismiss. So that's why I suspect that. Um, that's that's yeah. my thought on it. I, I, I feel like it's important to talk about, and I feel like it's a real deal. And, yeah. and for you guys, anybody, it's weird. You guys are just sitting here in our living room listening to us. Um, if, if you guys weren't here over the last two weeks, I would really encourage you to go back and, and listen to the two sermons and where we talk about white privilege. But um, talking about, if you don't mind, something that I had told you that we might end up talking about, um, we talked about socio- separating socioeconomics and class. Yeah. I'm sorry, socioeconomic class and race yeah. and how race is specific and glorious and how class is kind of subjective and evil. And... 
I, I remember telling you about a friend who had a family dinner and this friend's aunt during that dinner um, was talking about the west side of Louisville and yeah. we, we talked about the socioeconomic divide that I-65 represents in, in Louisville and how a lot of people call them those people. The, yeah. the people on the west side of 65 are those people and often those people that are in a lower socioeconomic bracket also get tied in as black people or Hispanic people and how, how, how race and socioeconomics are so closely divided. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a friend after the service and this was one of the feedback, the, the, the conversations we had afterwards, talking about that idea and this, this person's aunt said about the people on the west side, she said, why don't they just get a job? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's, that's people's, that's like the hidden thing in the back of people's minds is this idea that people in low socioeconomic people and thusly minority races because they're in a lower socioeconomic bracket in general um, are lazy, good for nothing, on welfare and so forth. And I've just been processing a lot, and I processed some of this in a conversation afterwards, about how really unfair some of that is. Now, yeah. there's some truth to it, and I think you would probably agree with that. Yeah. But I've, I've been going to area, area 61, Site 61 Church. I always call it Area 61. <laughs> Site oh. 61 Church. Uh, and on Mondays, they, they pack up all the food from the grocers and, and from, from uh, Dare to Care and... and uh, all the, all the other food networks in Louisville, and they take them and they distribute them on the west side of Louisville. And people yeah. line up, and they, they, they literally wait about an hour and a half yeah. to get a box of food about this big. And, and the food is, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that, that they get what they get, but some of it is old produce mm. and, and, like, the, the last day that it's good meat and oh, powdered donuts. And, and I think about how challenging... I think about my, my, call me middle middle class or lower middle class, mm -hmm. how, how challenging it would be if I really set my mind to it, how, how much work would I have to do to achieve upper middle class? I don't even know what those lines are, but I think it would be really hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have to work my tail off yeah. to get from my economic situation now to a higher bracket. Sure. And, and my thought is that probably the lower you go on the socioeconomic scale, the harder that battle becomes. So mm -hmm. when you're, if you would be considered lower, lower class, and you know, your income is next to nothing, and you know, you've got a sick mom, and, and you're, you're on benefits trying to help her, and you're waiting at Site 61, you know, that's two hours of your day that you could have been out spending trying to find a job, but instead you're just trying to put some food in your belly. Yeah. I suspect it's even harder for a person to move from a lower income situation to step up the wrong. And so I, I don't know why I'm even bringing this up except to say that I feel like the whole mentality of why don't those people just go get a job is something we really need to question and, and think about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Any thoughts? It's kind of like, uh, so let's say you picture a classroom, right? Mm -hmm. And you have kids in the front of the class and kids in the back of the class, okay? And you have everyone a paperball. I like paperballs. You figure this out, <laughs> right? And so let's say you have a trash can in the front of the classroom. And you say the goal is for everyone to throw the papers in the trash can, okay? So the kids who are situated in the front of the classroom, mm -hmm. it's easy for them. Mm -hmm. They're just like, okay, boom, it's in there. It's no big deal. The people in the back of the classroom, it's going to be a little bit harder. They'll throw, they'll miss. Some of them, their arm may not be strong enough. They may not even be able to get to the trash can. So the kids in the front of the classroom, it would be easy for them to turn back and say, oh, why don't they just throw it in there? Mm -hmm. you know? Right. You know, and it's like, what's, what's wrong with those people? And, and, then if like, you've, and, and then if the back of the classroom is, is primarily black and Hispanic, then you think, what's wrong with blacks and Hispanics? Correct. 
Correct. Right. You know, it's funny. I was uh, <laughs> I was watching this comedian man, and I because I, I love comedy, and uh, I can't repeat any of these jokes in, in a church setting because <laughs> uh, this would not be good. But you may have heard the guy's name is Richard Pryor, and uh, <laughs> so you know why you're you fired, cannot, dude. You're, you're so fired you right cannot, now. <laughs> you know, seriously, seriously. Okay, so he's he's like, you know, man. He says life is hard. Life is just hard. You know. And then you throw race on top of it. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the socioeconomic thing, it's like it's hard for any color person yeah, right. to rise out of a socioeconomic class. And then you have this layer of race thrown on top of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember talking to a friend of mine, and um, I'm just going to use the word, um, you know, Kevin, right? Okay. So I'll just say Kevin. And it's a good white name. Yeah, it's his name. Hey, Kevin. Hey, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> and so uh, his actual name was like, it, it had like a D or an LA, it was like, look Kevin, you know? And I was like, it's like, that's the actual birth name that he uh -huh. had, right? So he was trying to get a job at a big company here. So this is a black here. guy and I'm an idiot right now? No. Oh, okay. You're good. Hey, go. You're not an idiot. You talk, I'll just sit. Dude, you're the man, dude, <laughs> whatever. So he applies for these jobs, right? And mm -hmm. he does not get a job company. He just, he just cannot. Applies, applies, nothing happens. So he takes the LA off the first, off the first name, so it's just Kevin. Mm -hmm. Takes it off. Then he applies. And then he gets a call for an interview the next day. Mm. And then he gets in an interview, he does great in the interview, and he gets the job. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say, well, I'm sure it was a coincidence. When he, right. when he took that you know, extra letter off the front of his name, I'm sure it just so happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. But again, that's, that's culture. That's Okay, my perception of these people, obviously this type of name, is that they're probably this culture over here, and this culture is probably going to be lazy, going to be all these negative things, it's going to be a detriment to my company, so I'm not even going to call this person for an interview to see if they even have the skills necessary to do the job. Right. And so you have folks that are already in a lower economic state, and again, they have that, right. that prejudice thrown on top of them. So it is very difficult to rise out of that. We... we uh... We, we do this for hours. We, I mean, we, we can sit for three or four hours sometimes and, and, and hash things out. And we, we want to take some time to pray today, so we're, we're going to slowly move away from a conversation. But I, I, I do want to ask you one, one other question, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, man. You know, talking about Daylight Church and, and talking about the difficulty of creating a diverse church, and, and I'm thankful for, the, for, the, for what we have at Daylight. It's, it's actually quite nice as far as people of color attending. And... Uh, but I, I, was, I was telling you about a book called The, uh, the Elusive Dream, which is it's kind of the idea where church is concerned of, of, of holding on to the, the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. of, of you know, I dream that, that the races will be united, basically, and how challenging that is actually to do in practice in a church. Yeah. And they say that even that churches that achieve like a 20% minority grouping percentage uh, have done really well. Like that's that's a great example of a diverse church in America today. Sunday is still the most segregated moment in in, in America. It's it's not in sports and, and, and other other times, but when it comes to Sunday mornings, and the, and the book, my understanding is I haven't read it. I've just heard summaries of it. is is fairly depressing in how really almost impossible it is to create a truly diverse community that represents the community. So some so so some communities in 
you know, different parts of southern Illinois, for example, there's, there's no black people in the county. Mm -hmm. So it's almost impossible to build a diverse church there. Yeah. But in a place like Louisville, we're, it's a racially mixed area, and you would mm -hmm. like for your church to represent that mix. Now, I say all that to say I get on Daylight Church's website and I go to our staff page, and it's about 14 white people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do about that because, mm -hmm. it, and it, it gets, you know, gosh, we could talk for four hours and we'll get in trouble. It gets, it gets into even, even on the job, do you, do you hire a black guy just because he's black? And then is that an insult to the black community? You know, do I, do I ask some of my staff people to step down just so that we can get some black faces on the staff page? Uh, you know, my friends coming out of college were primarily white, not entirely, but primarily, and they're the people who got on board with us early on and started. And yet, if I'm, a, if I'm an African-American person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person and I get on our website and I see a bunch of white faces, I think that may not be the church, the church for me. Yeah. And we, we have a decent mix here as far as, you know, I, I'm happy with how we're growing, but I want that to continue to grow. So here's my question. I, I say all that, I'll sum it all up. My question to you is, as a black guy that comes to Daylight Church, how do, you, how do I help you move from coming to attend a mostly white church and be in attendance to owning this church? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, how, what, what do I do so that, so that black people, Hispanic people, Asian people can come here and not feel like they're attending a white guy's church, but feel like this is a church they can own? Yeah, absolutely. So and you have two minutes to sum this up. I got two minutes? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, okay. Yeah, good. Good. Right. Got it. Man. That was brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, go. Shoot. So, number one, uh, obviously, I cannot speak for every black person right. on the planet no more than you can speak for every white person. Right. right? Uh, because my situation is, is, is unique to other telephone situations. However, uh, I do feel like when you have, one thing that's great about uh, Daylight, and the reason why you have the amount of diversity that you have currently, is because you guys have an atmosphere, you have an atmosphere of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, a lot of times in churches, you know, people, people are, I think, are getting a little bit tired of, of fake stuff. People are getting a little bit tired of, I think people know that everyone's not perfect, but they just want people to admit it. You know, they want a leader that's going to be honest, you know. I ever heard a guy say, laugh at your faults because everyone else already is. Like if you, you know? try to sneak a gun through security Like airport, trying to sneak right? a gun through security, which I would never do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, <laughs> you, uh, you should have seen my wife's parents' faces. They were like, he brought a, he brought a what? <laughs> Can you imagine if I was like a guy? <laughs> How come Tremaine didn't show up? He is in jail. <laughs> For life. Right. <laughs> I'm just being serious. So, um, <laughs> so the big thing is you guys have an atmosphere of authenticity. And another thing is that you are not afraid to cover these type of issues. And I think that is huge. I think when you have, when you say, I'm going to openly discuss race, when you, I almost broke into tears when you went through your slides for white privilege. Mm. I really did. Because I was like, wow, wow. Finally, someone's willing, that's white, is willing to stand up and talk about these things and admit them and willing to bring them before Christ instead of pretending like they're not there. It was, I mean, you know, that put my heart in your hands, so to speak, figuratively. Because it's, there, there are people that most, most churches would, would, wouldn't even touch 
that topic. And if they do, they'll touch it from an us versus them standpoint. Instead of saying, hey, here's how people that look like me really messed this up. And I just want to start the conversation and start to make it right. And so I think authenticity, and I think about talking to things, talking about things that matter, uh, I think that's one of those things, or a couple things that will help bring or make a more diverse community. And another thing, of course, is, is, is worship. I remember Drew Lutz was telling me that, you know, the banner, the banner of God, I believe, that you said in Song of Solomon is, is love. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how they would worship before going into battle. Even when I talked about the civil rights movement and that purification process, before they took direct action, they would all get together and worship. And then even while doing their marches, they would sing, we shall overcome. So they're singing worship songs even while going through, uh, going through the, that struggle, mm -hmm. and so a lot of times, if you can uh, even diversify your 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 worship, as far as the like different town, different uh, different sounds, and, and and different types of music, even that in itself can can create right. a diverse atmosphere. But at the core, you have the relationships of the people, and you have the authenticity that uh, as a leader that you that you breed, and then you have the subject matters that you're covering. That sounds like our next four-hour conversation. I'd like to know how, how we build on what, what is the conversation that has been started here. And I, I just want to say this out loud. If you're here and, and you're of a non-white culture of any sort, um, feel free to approach me at any time and say, let me tell you what it's like being a black person at Daylight Church, or let me tell you what it's like being... I, 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 I hope, if nothing else, maybe today it'll be accomplished that you can see that we hope to have these conversations, that we're really serious about having them. And I, I, I just, I, 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 I hate the thought of anyone coming to Daylight and feeling like they're an attendee at a church that isn't theirs. Yeah. I, would, I would much rather make it your own. And I mean, obviously, we're very open to this being a pretty messy church, and it doesn't have to be perfect, and everything doesn't have to work out just where everything's uniform and, and wonderful every single time. There, it's okay if we say, hey, we've got some stuff we need to, we need to hash out and figure out here. So really, feel free to, to speak up and come talk to me uh, and, and fill my brain with good stuff.